0: The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T Row Price. At T Row Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post
2: Hello, hey, you. Here's the from The Washington
1: Post. Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Lori Aratani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 14th. Today, the death of a child while in the custody of U.S. Border Patrol. America backs away from climate change leadership. And a walk down Sesame Street. Late Thursday night, the Post reported that a 7-year-old from Guatemala died of dehydration and exhaustion while being held in a detention center on the New Mexico border.
3: In a few minutes, we have a conference call coming up with DHS. We're hoping to get more details about what happened and what kind of care this girl had um, between the time she was taken into custody and when she died.
1: Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration for The Post, and he and reporter Robert Moore uncovered the story.
3: This 7-year-old girl and her father crossed as part of a group of 163 people into the New Mexico deserts south of Lordsburg, New Mexico, on December 6th. They were taken into custody at about 10 p.m., so you can picture this as very dark out in the middle of nowhere. That's a very small Border Patrol station and an area where typically you do not see large groups of that sort.
1: Later on Friday, a White House spokesman said that the girl's death was a, quote, tragic situation, but said the Trump administration is not responsible.
3: What we know is that about eight and a half hours later, at 6.25 in the morning, the seven-year-old girl began having seizures. Emergency responders checked her temperature at that time, and it was 105.7. She reportedly, according to CVP, had not eaten or had any water in several days. They um, evacuated her by helicopter to an El Paso hospital, and she went into Cardiac arrest. They were able to revive her, but she died 24 hours later.
1: What do we know about the care or aid that this girl received when she was first um, taken into the detention center?
3: So that's the big question right now. What happened in those eight hours that the girl was in U.S. custody? Typically, the Border Patrol, as a matter of protocol, they offer food and water, and when someone is goes through what is called the intake process, that includes a medical exam. So what we don't know is, did she get that in those eight and a half hours? Because you'd think that they would have detected an extremely high fever of that kind. What this points to, I believe, is the degree to which some of these smaller border patrol stations are just completely inadequate for large groups of families with children. They were designed primarily for single men. And it's not hard to imagine this group of 163 people showing up at this pretty small border patrol station with, you know, probably not like a ton of agents. And, you know, it's the middle of the night. Was this girl checked? Maybe it looked like she was asleep. And, you know, these places don't typically have like individual cells. You can imagine like giant kind of holding cells. But in a in a station like this, 163 people probably don't even fit in their holding cells. So some of these people might have been just kind of like waiting in the lobby, waiting outside in the in what they call the Sally port where where their vehicles arrive and, and they begin the intake process. We just we just don't know any of those things, and hopefully we'll get more clarity on it today.
1: So this all happened on December 6th and December 7th. Correct. How did we find out about this?
3: One of our, our, our stringers, a our reporter we work with in El Paso, Bob Moore, he got a tip about this from a contact he has there in El Paso. And then we took it to US Customs and Border Protection and said, look, we know that this happened. And, you know, to their credit, they were fairly forthcoming about these details of the incident and gave us this statement last night.
1: Do we know anything more about why this girl and her family was trying to cross the border, more about what their circumstances were before they got there?
3: We don't know anything about the girl nor her father other than that they were Guatemalan nationals. But what we do know is that, you know, they came as part of this very large group that included mostly families. And in the past week, there have been other massive groups of this sort, including one yesterday that was 227 people. So this is part of a really an extraordinary shift at the border. And you know what is now this growing phenomenon of families coming over and turning themselves into border patrol agents to seek some sort of humanitarian protection, often asylum, um they are not trying to evade capture anything like that they're showing up really by the bus load and um asking to be taken into custody in order to start this process it's a very similar thing to what we've seen with the caravan that's in the Tijuana San Diego area but you know one of the things that's important to keep in mind is throughout this whole process when all of this attention has been on Tijuana and San Diego um you know large groups of this sort continue to arrive to Arizona New Mexico and South Texas
1: why are we seeing these larger groups of, of people trying to cross the border?
3: This is the new way to um, really to gain um, entrance into the United States. These people are fleeing very desperate conditions in Central America, but there is also a growing awareness, a growing knowledge that the the best chance you have for crossing and not being deported is to have a child, because... As we know from the whole family separation episode earlier this year, if you arrive with a child, the U.S. government has a very limited ability to detain you and really doesn't really like have any place to detain you practically other than a couple of spots. The fact of the matter is that this works as a way to gain entrance to the United States, whether or not someone has a legitimate asylum claim or not. This is the administrative path to America.
1: You said that Your hunch is that in this particular case with this girl and and the many people that she was traveling with, that likely the detention center there wasn't prepared to handle such a large number of people. Is that systemic for facilities along the border? I mean, are they able to handle the fact that there are larger and larger groups of people trying to cross all over the border?
3: Well, I'll I'll remind you, like, so back in 2014, when we had the so-called child migrant crisis, all of these minors were showing up in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. At the time, we obtained a video, you know, a sort of surreptitious recording of what one of those stations looked like at the time, and it had children sprawled out across the floor, spilling out into the sally port where the where the buses were coming in, and just completely overwhelmed. Well, now what we're seeing are massive groups showing up in places like, you know, Lordsburg, New, New, New Mexico, right, where these are tiny border patrol stations. Yuma, Arizona was also seeing uh, a big surge. And most of these folks are Guatemalan migrants. So they're actually not the same as the mostly Honduran group that is, you know, joined the caravan and went to Tijuana. These are These are Guatemalan migrants that are part of really large groups, and they're showing up in these really remote areas.
1: Do you think the death of this child will potentially change anything at the border?
3: You know, um, I don't, but uh, I will note that, um, you know, on Tuesday, the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, Kevin McAleenan, was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. He didn't describe this death, but the death had happened the week before, and this was clearly on his mind when he told senators that you know that the infrastructure that the agency has in place is completely inadequate to you know to what they're facing right now. and he's a uh, you know he's advocating to his credit for more um, uh, medical and mental health professionals who are better you know able to respond to this this population of of children and fan families coming over. Um, but you know, given our current political climate, I don't have much expectation that anything will change.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. For the past couple of weeks, a climate change conference sponsored by the UN has been taking place in Poland. And on Wednesday, there was this bizarre moment.
3: Natural gas is a very versatile fuel that can be...
1: A delegate representing the U.S. gave a big presentation basically saying, look, there is no way that we're going to stop
0: using fossil
3: fuels. Fossil fuel use is not declining. It's continuing
0: at a steady pace. It was an odd moment, especially at an international climate conference.
1: Brady Dennis, an environment reporter for The Post, was there when all of that went down.
0: I'm just doing a radio interview. Can I do it because the noise is downstairs?
1: And he talked to us from inside the conference hall. Yeah, no, it sounds much quieter over where you are now where hundreds of delegates from around the world were closing in on a deal about how other countries were going to keep combating climate change. Brady has been reporting about what that controversial speech says about the U.S.'s current role
0: in fighting climate change. It really kind of stuck out. Um, it really kind of underscored how isolated the U.S. is from the rest of the world right now on this issue.
1: For the U.S. delegation at this conference, what kind of message are they trying to to send here?
0: I mean, the U.S. is in a really weird spot. I mean, if you're part of the U.S. delegation, you have to walk this line, I think, of still participating in these talks because um, technically, even though President Trump has said, you know, we're going to leave this agreement um, under the rules uh, of it, you can't leave until the end of 2020. And so if you're a career person here negotiating on behalf of the State Department, there are things you want. Like you want transparency. You want all the countries in the world to have to say what they're doing about climate change, have to disclose you know, what their emissions are each year, that kind of thing, because the U.S. already does this, right? That's one level. But the other level, and it's sort of like um, the elephant in, in any room here, is that the U.S. is walking away from the Paris Climate Accords. And so when it comes to these large fights over how ambitious the world should be or how what pledges we should make. Um, the U.S. is kind of absent from that discussion. The U.S. is kind of on the sidelines, and that's a place it's not used to being. The U.S. has traditionally been a leader in these settings, and we're waiting to see, frankly, you know, what the U.S. absence means. Um, does that does that hurt the prospects for what the world's going to do on climate change?
1: What are the actual objectives of the summit?
0: They're doing many things, but the two main things they're working on are taking the Paris Agreement, which, you know said the world wants to take action on climate change and putting the rules to that. It's almost like I've likened it this week to Congress passing a bill, passing a law, and then the the federal agencies have to write the rules of how that law gets put into action. That's what's happening here this week, and that's kind of why it's so complicated, because there's a lot of rules to be written uh, that countries are going to follow. The second and arguably just as important, if not more important part, is uh, this idea of ambition and getting countries to say, we're all still on board with this, we're all still going to do our part. And in 2020, or by 2020, we're all going to ramp up our goals, we're all going to uh, say we're ready to do more. And if they can get, you know, all the countries to agree to that, then I think it, that would be considered a success.
1: You know, obviously, the US is a very high profile example of a, of a country that is backed off of, of commitments that it previously made but also you know we're seeing in France that after um protests in Paris um Emmanuel Macron suspended the gas tax that he was about to to put in place to you know help curb emissions and and to be more in line with with the goals of of this climate talk and so I, it seems like we're hitting this moment where a lot of countries are realizing the very difficult realities of Actually, doing something to stop climate change.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it gets pretty tricky at a place like this when you really um, are faced with um, what that looks like in practice. I will just talk about one interesting um, fight that has emerged this week, if that's what you want to call it. Um, is that and this? You know, this has happened before too. But there are these. You know, the large countries uh, have so much sway at these things. The United States and China and Brazil and India and Um, You know, much of Europe, Germany, and France, but it's really these small island states and nations like Costa Rica, uh, to give an example, that have said, wait a minute, like, we're the ones that are feeling this already. The former president of the Maldives told me today, you know, climate change is not some theoretical future for us. The sea is rising and our freshwater is being threatened by that. And if the world continues on business as usual, we won't be here, you know, in say 50 years. So it's really the small countries that are pushing the larger countries to be more ambitious, saying, in so many words, you know, you got us into this. you got to do more to get us out.
1: And is that effective at all? I mean, small countries like Costa Rica, I I can imagine it must be tough to go toe-to-toe with the U.S.
0: It is effective because um, in one way they can block or stall, you know, um, just as someone in the minority in Congress can hold up a bill. I mean, it's sort of that dynamic Um, but also, you know, they've, they've, they've swayed these talks before in that direction. Like in Paris, they, they pressed for the, for the most ambitious goal to be not allowing the global temperature to rise more than 1.5 degrees rather than just two degrees. They said, let's, let's aim for 1.5 degrees Celsius, because after that, we might be wiped off the face of the earth. So I do think these kind of blocks of countries that get together can, can have an outcome on the rest of the world. And over time... I think the goal was for everybody to uh, hold each other accountable.
1: But it seems like we're still pretty far
0: from that goal. We're still pretty far from that goal. We're just, you know, the promises that countries made in Paris, as much of a landmark kind of moment as that was, even then everyone knew what, what countries promised was nowhere near enough uh, to what needs to be done to really fight global warming, to really hold it from um, from rising over the course of this century. And so if Paris is going to work, you know, everyone has to be more ambitious over time. But countries are reluctant to, to ramp up that ambition unless they're pretty sure that they can meet those goals and that it's not going to you know, harm their economies and their people. We talk about climate change and global warming, but it's really about how people live and who it affects and how it affects their livelihoods.
1: The climate summit has officially wrapped up, but negotiators are expected to keep working into the weekend. And now, one more thing. Post-education reporter Laura Meckler takes us down Sesame Street.
2: The new video from Sesame Street opens up with a typical sort of street scene that you see in Sesame Street. You have a couple Muppets and an adult who are painting a mural of a rainbow. And they're almost done with it. And the the adult, her name is Sophia, says, well, we just need purple now. And one of the, the little girl who's there with Elmo, she says, oh, Purple. purple. Lily, are, are you OK?
3: Yeah. Um, why this Lily looks so sad? You
2: know, it's clear that she's upset about something. And they ask her, what's wrong? And she says, well, I'm just not sure I want to paint anymore. It doesn't, doesn't really, really feel, feel like, like a, a rainbow, rainbow kind, kind of, day. of day. Lily, Elmo and I are your friends. And, and we're here for you, for anything you want to talk about, yeah. anything at all and she says that it's just that well my bedroom is purple and purple's my favorite color and it reminds me of my bedroom and well we don't have our own apartment anymore and we've been staying in all different kinds of places by introducing a homeless Muppet into Sesame Street, I think what they're trying to do is the same thing that Sesame Street has been doing really since it first went on the air in 1969. It tries to expose kids to all sorts of differences. People, or Muppets in this case, who, who are like them and also who are not like them, and who are going through tough things. Lily, no matter where you are, always remember. The thing about home is, home is more than a house or an apartment. Home is really where the love is. The really amazing thing about Sesame Street is that it is really not just a TV show. It really is education. And there was a fascinating study just a couple of years ago from the National Bureau of Economic Research. It suggested that this show was the largest and least costly intervention that's ever been implemented in the United States for early childhood. Sesame Street really signaled its openness to talking about these kinds of tough issues almost right from the start. In its very first season, it had Kermit the Frog. It's not that easy being green. Of course, there are not any so you know green children listening to that, and there probably aren't very many frogs absorbing Sesame Street. But what the children are absorbing is maybe they're feeling like their color doesn't fit in. And this is, uh, you know, not a not-too-subtle message to them.
3: Why wonder, why wonder,
2: I'm green, and it'll do fine, fine.
3: and it's It's beautiful, beautiful. and And I I think think it's it's what I want to be.
1: That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.